reading this morning from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. The Good Life is about the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is the most influential speech in human history. There is no close second. Uh, Multiple times in this speech that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, he drops these little bombshells that really altered religious thought of his day and for and have echoed for centuries since then. And so each one of uh, these weeks that we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at one of those statements that Jesus made. And today, it's this statement, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What does that mean? Well, I got to take you to uh, the golf course, because I was out on the golf course here uh, maybe last summer. And I uh, was out there, and all of a sudden, the sun just got, you know, a little bit brighter. And I realized, oh my goodness, I have some sunglasses. I need to put my sunglasses on so that, you know, I can actually see what's going on. And so uh, I began to look for my sunglasses. They were not in my uh, bag. I, I looked and you know, on top of my hat. Sometimes I rest them there. They weren't there. I looked uh, in my pockets. I just couldn't find my sunglasses. All of a sudden, one of my, you know, one of my golf buddies, uh, Mark, I think, um, he he looks at me. He says, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for my sunglasses. I left them somewhere. I think maybe, maybe I left them on a hole or something because I can't find them anywhere. And he just looks at me for a minute with this kind of, come on, man. And I realized I was wearing my sunglasses, right? I had gotten so used to looking through my glasses that I didn't even think they were there. I got so used to the view through my sunglasses that was already tinted, already shaded, that I fooled myself about what I was really seeing. And it works that way sometimes. Jesus, when he talks about this, this subject uh, for a few verses in Matthew 6, he starts talking about money. And then sandwiched in between, and he ends talking about money. And sandwiched in between these statements about money is this weird cryptic verse about our eyes and about our sight. It says this, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light within you is darkness and how great that darkness will be. And so he sandwiches these lines about the eye and seeing 
right in the middle of this discussion about money, what's going on. And all the, what Jesus is getting at here is the same thing that was happening with me and my sunglasses. Money, he mentions the eye because money affects how you see the world. And we get so comfortable with money. We, we use it every day. Maybe you don't use the actual paper kind anymore, but you pull a card out and hardly a day goes by where we don't handle money. We don't track money. We don't do some calculation with money. It's such a part of our lives that we forget that we're using money actually to see, to make decisions, to navigate life. And just like my sunglasses, we think we're seeing things as they are, but the truth is that money is shading our reality. It is tinting our view, and that's where we get into trouble when we forget that. And so we could say this, money has the power to influence the way we see life even without us realizing it. That's a big statement. And so just for a few minutes here at the beginning of the sermon, I I just want to roll through some of the ways that money shades our sight and affects the way we see. Number one, money blinds us sometimes to our status in life. How many of you would love to have a million dollars? I like every hand should go up. Come on, be honest, right? We all want, yes, right. Uh, Because for most of us, $1 million is still that kind of magical figure that means achievement, and it represents maybe a lot of different things. It represents freedom, or it represents options, or it represents maybe retirement. Um, And so we say to ourselves, if I just had a million dollars, then I'd be rich. Yes, that's it, rich. A million dollars is the benchmark that a lot of us use to consider ourselves wealthy. The problem with that is that it might not work that way. A survey was done of millionaires, and these are people with a million dollars or more in investable assets, okay? So millionaires, and they were asked to do a little self-assessment. They were asked about what they thought about their current status. And 13% of them, only 13% of them, These are people with over a million dollars in investable assets. Only 13% of them regarded themselves as wealthy, as rich. Did you hear that? And this wasn't just a few millionaires. There were 700 millionaires in this study. And here's, if you flip that, it means that 87% of the 700 millionaires, almost 9 out of 10, said, I'm not wealthy. And do you see, wealth is always relative. Wealth is always the person with a little bit more than me, right? No matter where you are on the spectrum. It doesn't take a million dollars to think that way. We all do. No one thinks that they're really rich. Rich is always a relative term, no matter where you are, with $1,000 or $10,000 or a hundred or a million. Rich is always the person on the next rung up, and money blinds us to our status and makes us always think, no matter how much we have, oh, that person over there is wealthy because they have a little bit more than me, but I'm not. 
Money blinds us to our status. Number two, money blinds us to our greed. And this is the next logical step in this blindness process. If no one thinks that they're ever rich, then it's also easy for us to think that we're never greedy. Um, And we do this all the time. Uh, Here's a test for you, just like the millionaires. I want you to assess yourself. And here's what I want to ask you. When is the last time that you went before God and you got on your knees and you said, God, forgive me for my greed? Is that a thing that we normally confess? Probably not. Because it's probably not on our radar. Why? Because we don't think we're greedy because we don't think we're rich. And surely it's only rich people that are greedy, right? That's the way we justify this. But think about it. Why did you take that job? Why did you do that side hustle that you're doing? What was your motive Why did you lie to that clerk when she gave you a 10 and you were only supposed to get a one back and you didn't say anything? Why did you skip out on that tip for the waitress that worked hard for you? Why did you fudge those numbers on that form? See, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Greed is there. Those are direct signals of our greed and money blinds us to our sin. Of greed. Number three, it blinds us also to our legitimate needs. Uh, maybe money is, has been tight for you at times, and it sure has for me at times. And during those times, you probably ask this question, do I really need this? Before you make a purchase, maybe you're looking at a t-shirt or a gadget or uh, maybe going out to eat, and you, and you look at the budget and you say, do, do I really need this? Can, do I, can I really afford this? And that's a good question to ask. But if you just get a little bit of cushion in that budget, even just a few dollars, often that question, do I really need this, gets thrown out the window. And money has this way of gagging us so that we forget to ask the right questions. Do I really need this? Should I spend this much money on my house? Should I have this many shoes? Does my car really need to be a late model? And there are tremendous questions that Christians can't afford not to ask when eternity hangs in the balance, when money can literally shape the eternal destinies of so many people. And there are questions that we always need to be asking as Christians. Are there ways that I can give more to my church? Are there ways that I can give more to the people around me that are uh, in situations where I'm, uh, I'm the one that can help them out? Is there a way that I can give more to the town that I live in. Uh, And we forget to ask those questions sometimes because money shades our view and blinds us. Uh, Number four, money blinds us sometimes to our real problems, to our real problems. Money can make us think that we are in total control, that we have everything, that we don't need to rely on anyone, including God himself, and because what money does is it gives us this illusion of security, but, but all it takes is one of life's problems to pop up, and it exposes that false security. So I wanna, want you to do a little thought experiment. I want you to put yourself in that situation where you think, oh, I'm, I'm finally wealthy, 
okay? You have all, you could, all the comforts you could ever imagine. Maybe you have the house on the hill and uh, you have a boat and a car and you have the land outside and you have a housekeeper. Maybe you even have a driver. You have a butler at the front. You have a personal trainer that comes in. You have a chef that cooks all your, fe- all your food. Fine, all those things are great. That's what you're imagining now, okay? Now I want you to think about this. In that situation, Will those things, will the cars, the land, the boat, the house, will those things come to your rescue when your child decides, you know what, I don't like you guys and I don't like the God that you serve and I'm gonna go do my own thing. Will the land send you a card in that moment? Think about when your spouse maybe passes away. Will those things send you a condolence? Think about when that doctor walks in to the room and gives you that diagnosis that you do not want to hear. Will all of those toys come to your rescue? Can money fix the problem? And the answer is always, always, always no. Why? Because money can't touch your real problem. And your real problem is always that you have separated yourself from the God who made you because of the sin in your life. And money can't fix that. There's only one person that can, and it's Jesus. There's so many uh, well-intentioned Christian parents over the years, and I I could, uh, you know, just go down the line um, in my time in youth ministry that kids would come to me and say things like this. And, and, uh, uh, so many well-intentioned, and I want to say that out loud, well-intentioned. They, they have good hearts. They, they, think, they think they're given the right advice, but they've counseled their kids who want to go into ministry or to be a missionary or to go work in a church somewhere, and they, they often say this. Again, well-intentioned. They're trying to give good advice. They say this. Well, that's fine. That's great. You should probably do that. But first, but first, let's get your degree in something useful. Maybe let's go out and find a real job so that you can have some footing and maybe we'll save some money and put some money in the bank for some security and then you can go do the missionary thing or go in the ministry thing or do that kind of thing. But let's put a foundation in place first. There's a Christian professor, Addison Leach, who said that he had lots of students come to his Bible class and uh, say things like this. Hey, I I wanted to be a missionary and my, my parents are saying this. And he said, here's what I would say to your parents. I would say to parents reaching for the security for their kids, I would say this, you know what? We're on a little ball of rock and it's spinning through space and it's called earth. And who knows What's going to happen on this spinning ball of rock? Maybe we run into something. Even if we don't, someday each one of us is going to, underneath us, there's a trap door and it's going to open up and you're going to fall off this little ball of rock that's spinning through space. And underneath, when you fall off this rock, will either be the everlasting arms of Jesus or nothing at all. And do you think your master's degree is going to give your kid some security? We think that money can give us the security that we're after. The fact is, money can't possibly stop all your real problems. Money cannot stop death. 
Money cannot stop tragedy. Money cannot stop broken relationships. At the end of the day, it cannot stop anything because it is not the real problem. It doesn't touch it. Wealth creates the illusion that we're in control, but we're not. And some of us learn this way too late. Here's number five. Money blinds us to our pride, to our pride. It can make us think that we're pretty special. Um, Maybe we live in the upscale neighborhood. Maybe we drive the car of the month. Maybe we take really incredible vacations. And the thought that follows those things is incredibly dangerous. And it's very close to the wealth that allows us to do those things. And the way we start thinking is, I'm better than other people who can't afford the upscale neighborhood or drive the car or take the vacations. And money allows this sin of superiority to creep in to our lives. And it's another sin, just like greed, that we dismiss pretty easily. It's the sin of pride. And we, we say to ourselves, ah, I'm not really prideful. I don't think I'm better than. I just, and we use words like, I'm just successful, or I'm just intelligent, or I'm just business savvy. And those things might be true. But too often, what we really believe deep down is that we are actually better than the other person because of what we've attained in life. And we make money the ultimate scorecard. And Jesus said something to the people who just knew that they were better than everybody else. He said, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people who haven't achieved anything, they are closer to the kingdom of heaven than you are. That's what he said. Money blinds us to our pride. Number six, money blinds us to our priorities, to our priorities. It, money has this incredible um, ability to give us endless, literally endless diversions for ourselves. Um, all the options that we have because of what money affords us, even good options, they're all, when you all pile, pile all those options together, whether uh, it's what we eat or what we watch or where we live or what vacation we go on or what toys we have, all of those options piled together have the power to fill up our days so much that we have no room left for God. Every option that you say yes to, the house, the boat, the Netflix, the hobby, takes time. And time is stealing your focus from the God who needs some of that time. How many of people have spent their whole life amassing pretty toys only to find at the end of it that life isn't about the toys that they've amassed. It's about the family and the people that God has put around them. And it's so easy to ignore those relationships that God has put there. That that is the real priority. And when we realize that sometimes it's too late, you can always buy a car and that car will be very loyal to you as it sits in your garage. But the time to love those around you, your family well enough so that you have their undying loyalty, that time is short and it passes by very quickly. And it's never, never recovered. Clifton is, uh, uh, works in the medical field, and he attends here at Community Christian Church. And one of the things he said to me that has just stuck with me over the years, he said, he's, I've watched a lot of people die. He he's, works in the medical field. And he said this, 
When they're dying, I've never once had a dying person ask for their wallet. They ask for God. And I can imagine that they also ask for their family and for the people that are important to them, right? And those are our priorities. Sometimes we see through these shades of money and it distorts our view and we get our priorities out of line. The blinding power that wealth has makes it probably one of the worst things that could happen to a certain percentage of us. But all of that said, I don't want you to jump the gun because we're going to flip to the complete opposite side right now. I don't want you to take everything that I've said already and make that a summary statement about everyone who happens to make a few more dollars than you. To judge somebody just because they are rich and have a little more than you is to judge them unfairly and God himself unfairly because God is the giver of wealth. God is the creator of wealth and disperses it at his pleasure. And so we're going to say this, money has the power to build the life that God wants when we're intentional with it. If you are condemning the rich at every turn, then I need you to meet a guy named Joe. At the climax of the gospel story, we meet Joe. And Joe turns this idea that being poor is spiritual on on its head. It, It just obliterates that right in the gospel message. Joe is a prominent member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish ruling council. Uh, he, was, he had lots of clout. He, has, he had lots of wealth. And he was one of the people that opposed the decision to kill Jesus and crucify him. And it's after the crucifixion that Joe, Joseph of Arimathea, is the only one who has the courage and the clout to go to a guy named Pilate who sent Jesus to the cross and actually ask for the body of Jesus. And when he was granted permission, Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus off of the cross. He wrapped his body in fine linens. He buried him in a brand new tomb that he himself had just purchased. And you know the rest of the story. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday, and he appeared to his disciples for about 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven, and the church is born. But that would not have been the case without Joe. He was instrumental in the story. That's why the gospel writers tell us about Joe. God knew that this rich man would be remembered for his generosity. Now, the question is, why did God give this kind of honor to a rich man? Why not some poor person with no name? Why doesn't that guy get to take Jesus down from the cross? And the answer is this, that God honored Joe because as a rich man, he was the right man for the job. I want you to think about this. No other person but a very wealthy, prominent man could have gained access to the Roman governor so quickly as Joseph of Arimathea. No one else could have gained an entrance 
into the presence with Pilate. Number two, no one but a well-respected, connected, successful, wealthy man could have persuaded Pilate to hand over the body of Jesus. Think about how Rome would have viewed Jesus. He was a criminal. He wasn't even worthy to be taken down from the cross in the eyes of Rome, let alone be given a burial. Even if he was taken down from the cross, we're going to throw him in a ditch somewhere. Wow, the resurrection would have taken a really weird turn if that would have been the case, right? But Joseph of Arimathea convinces Pilate to turn the body over to him. Number three, no one but a very wealthy, rich guy could have afforded a big sepulcher that was already carved out of the rock in which to lay the body of Jesus. And all of this means this, that no one but a rich man could have taken care of all of the details that needed taken care of relating to Christ's death and his burial No one could have taken care of all of that with such efficiency and precision and dignity as a person with means. And Joe shows us that money doesn't have to be bad. Money can be very good. It can separate us from God, but it does not have to. Money can bring greater blessings to others. Money can advance the kingdom on the earth. Money can bring glory to God. It can bring life's pleasures within reach. It can decrease our anxiety and our worry. It can improve our quality of life. It can make your life much more pleasant. I don't know about you, but my life is better with cake. And I am so glad that I can afford cake every once in a while, right? It would be, to deny those kind of things would be crazy. So let's say this, money is always conditional. It's always based on an if-then statement. It's much like a brick. What can I do with this brick in my hand? Well, I could startle some of you and just lob it out in the audience. How would that go? I could startle a few more of you and just lob it onto the piano over there, right? Uh, I could throw it through the window, back there. And if I do those kind of things, what am I doing with the brick? I'm breaking things, right? But you know as well as I do, we can also do some really productive things with this brick. We can use it not to break, but to build. And we can build a home. We can build a church. Put enough of them together, we can build a hospital. We can build things that are very productive. And here's the thing, the brick itself does not care. It's neutral. Only the person holding the brick decides what the brick will be useful for, for either breaking things or building things. And money is the very same. It's neutral. Money doesn't care. You can use money for good or for bad. And the conditional if-then from Jesus about money is this. Money will be a blessing to you Only if you view it as a gift from God. That's what Jesus is saying. Money will be beneficial to your spiritual welfare only if you are generous with it because you realize that it is God that has given it to you in the first place. Jesus says it this way. Jesus is 
Uh, Money is useful only if it's not your master. Guard your attitude well when it comes to your money. If it's not in the right place, your attitude, then money will be a curse to you rather than the blessing that God intends it to be. It will rust and it will decay and it will ultimately ruin you. And so what are you going to choose to do with the money that God has given you? Will you build with it or will you break things with it? Those are your options. If you wanna build things with the money that God has given you, then we need to give money the right place. But that's gonna be difficult because remember, we're all wearing sunglasses that we forget that are even there. We are blind, right? And what blindness calls for is a guide. We need somebody to help us as we try to stumble through the dark. We need somebody to open up our eyes so that we can see things as they really are. In the year 1635, there was a guy named Robert Kane, and he was the member of the First Congregational Church of Boston. And let's just say that Robert was doing pretty well as a businessman. But in 1635, the elders at his church, at the First Congregational Church, decided to discipline him. Why? They disciplined him for the sin of greed. And they said to Robert, you are no longer allowed to take the Lord's Supper And they admonished him for the sin of greed. And here's the reason, that Robert Cain decided to sell his product in his business at a 6% profit. And the church decided three or four years before that Christians should only be allowed to sell their wares at a 4% profit. Now, some of you are thinking, man, can my cell phone provider start going to that church? That'd be awesome. So... When they found he was selling his wares at 6%, they disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, as we read a story like that, it would be logical for us to stand back and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, where in the Bible does it say that? 4%? What are they talking about? That's nowhere in there. Here's the thing. This church knew something that it's taking us a while to figure out. What they knew is that When you're committing some sins, you absolutely know that you're committing them. When you're committing adultery, you know that you're committing adultery, right? But greed is different. Greed is blinding. We have sunglasses on. We can't see anything. When you're being greedy, you usually never know it. And so knowing this, they all sat down together, this whole church, and as Christians, they said, you know what? We read in the New Testament that Jesus talks about money all the time. He's constantly saying, watch out for greed. He's always saying, give your money away. He's always saying, don't spend your money all on yourself. All the way through the Gospels, he's talking about money. It's so frightening. I mean, if we preached on money as often as Jesus did, we would not have a church. Nobody would come. And so this church body got together and they said to each other, you know what? Some business practices, we don't know what they are, but some business practices have to be greedy. They just by their nature. Some lifestyles have to be defined as greedy, but how are we going to know that? And so there have to be some. And so they said, okay, let's establish some guidelines together. Let's sit down and let's just say that in our time, in our place, in our congregation, in this, this church body right now, we can't talk about anybody in another time or somewhere other part of town. But for us, 
we're going to, to decide what constitutes greed and what const, constitutes a healthy way of using money. And one of the things that they came up to, with, and Robert Kane was in this circle of people, was, you know what, we're going to sell our, profit, uh, our, our wares at a 4% profit. And so when Robert Kane went to six and they agreed on four, he knew that they were right to hold him to the fire. And here's the point. Who are you accountable to when it comes to your money? Who have you pulled in to help guide you? Who have you said, you know what? I need help because greed is blinding and sometimes I'll be greedy and I won't even recognize it. And would you, at that point, would you tell me, hey, you're being greedy. You're spending your money on yourself instead of giving it away like you should. And so invite somebody in to help you with how you're spending your money, how much you're keeping, what you're doing with it. Who have you authorized? What Christians have you authorized to come into your life And of course, they authorize you to step in to theirs. We have to have some standards and we can't trust ourselves because we are blind. We have the sunglasses on and we need help. And that's the principle. Would you do that? That's Jesus's whole point about greed, that money has the power to keep you from asking questions about how you spend your money and how you make your money. So invite somebody in that can see clearly, somebody who can say, you know what, dummy, your glasses are on your head. They're right there. I'm gonna call the band up, and to end, I wanna point out a letter um, that was written. It's called The Letter to Diognetus, and it was written after just after Jesus' day, but in the very earliest parts of the church. And this is the day when the church was growing so rapidly that uh, it was really taking over the Roman Empire. And the letter writes about early Christians, and it tells how they they lived and why they were so popular and why they stunned people so much. And the letter says this in one line. About Christians, we share our table with all, our communion table. We, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. How does that fit with what we're saying? In other words, what they were saying is that's very different from the pagans around us. Do you know what the pagans around us do? They are very promiscuous with their bodies, but very stingy with their monies. But Christians are the opposite. We are very stingy with our bodies, but we're incredibly promiscuous with our money. And here's the question. What kind of person do you want next to you? Which person will benefit his neighborhood more, his workplace more? Do you want to live among a bunch of people who are promiscuous with their bodies but stingy with their money? Or would you rather live in a town where people are very stingy with their bodies and very promiscuous with their money, always giving it away? Which way builds a church? And which way breaks a church? Which way of living gives kids in our community every possible chance? And which way wounds them for life? Which way saves families in our town? And which way splits them apart?
which way brings health to Fort Scott, America? And which way just brings pain? The whole point is to spur us to generosity today. Jesus says it this way, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At the end of the day, at the end of the life, when that trap door opens underneath you, nothing can be taken with you when you go. It can only be waiting on you when you arrive. And on that day, when you walk into heaven, what treasures will you find there? And whatever it is, it will only be there because of what you did with your money today. Today. So take the sunglasses off and live a life that's generous. Generosity not only produces a great life now, but a great life forever. And there's so many tremendous ramifications. If we would begin to just live this part of the Sermon on the Mount out, could we do that as a body of believers in this place? Father, we thank you for your gifts that you give us. I love the the line from John Wesley. He says that Christians should gain all they can. Christians should save all they can. And likewise, Christians should give all they can. And the more they give, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Father, help us to send our treasure ahead so that it's waiting when we get there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Would you stand? We're gonna sing and worship today. Um, maybe you have never accepted that greatest gift that Jesus, that God gave in the person of Jesus. And that is the first step to laying treasure up in heaven. The first step is to get in, right? And Jesus is that doorway. Would you, if you haven't considered that, would you let the Holy Spirit work? And maybe he's pricking your heart and maybe he's saying, you know what? You need to bow the knee today. You need to believe in faith repent and confess and step into the waters of baptism and accept Jesus into your life. And that's a treasure that will never be taken away from you. If that's your decision, you come as we sing.